This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I have to confess, for most of my life, I wanted to be a Jeopardy contestant. I went down and tried out twice. I did very well in the audition. If I do say so twice, they never called me. A few days ago, high school pal Sherry Kelleher texted me to say I should check out Jeopardy. They were having a tournament of champions. She thought of me. I said to her, yeah, I stopped watching it a while ago. They never called me. She said, well, you should audition again. To which I said, look, if they didn't call me when I was a lot younger and better looking, they're not going to call me now. But you're slightly less insufferable now. (laughs) Anyway, watched a million episodes, I suppose, over the years, going back to when Art Fleming was the host. But I'm sorry to report that, I guess a week or so ago, uh, Jeopardy probably hit its lowest point in its entire history. Or at least one could make the case for it. I'm going to try. Evidently, here's what happened last week when they were recording an episode. Contestant Katie Needle was given the clue, built in 300 A.D., the Church of the Nativity, under the category heading, Where's That Church? When Needle responded, Palestine, Alex Trebek told her that was incorrect. Moments later, another contestant, Jack McGuire, answered, What is Israel? And he got awarded $200. Now, geography lesson. The Church of the Nativity, a World Heritage Site, believed to be the birthplace of Jesus. Well, believed to be because when Constantine's mother went there in about the year 300 and said, you know what? I think the nativity took place here. Who was going to tell the emperor's mom? No, sorry, honey. No. At any rate, it is located in the city of Bethlehem, not surprisingly, birthplace of Jesus, which is in the occupied West Bank, which is internationally recognized as being a part of Palestine. When Palestine was partitioned back in 1947, two nations were supposed to be created, Israel and Palestine. That hasn't worked out so well. The territory that remains internationally recognized as Palestine is now under Israeli occupation. Of course, that was before Ariel Sharon and a lot of other Israeli hawks decided to move settlers into Palestinian territory, which they have now done to the tune of hundreds of thousands of such settlers, squatting on what was supposed to be Palestinian land. This is not sitting well in some circles, said Palestinian spokesman James Zogby in a tweet. This is outrageous. If Israel had been the answer, it would have been bad enough. But the fact that she gave Palestine as the answer and was told it was wrong makes this an outrage and an insult to history, reality, and thousands of oppressed Palestinians in Bethlehem. Zogby recently wrote, suffering under Israeli military occupation since 1967, Bethlehem has slowly been strangled. It has lost most of its land to settlement construction. It is hemmed in by 30-foot-high concrete walls, stripped of its resources, and denied access to external markets. The United Nations says Israeli settlements in Bethlehem and other parts of the West Bank are illegal and has called them a flagrant violation of international law. Imran Siddiqui, executive director of the Council of American Islamic Relations, 
At least the Arizona chapter told Al Jazeera, This just shows how normalized the occupation and cleansing of the Palestinian people from the historical record has become. Anyway, I don't want to go on and on about this, but good God. We're not blaming Alex Trebek, by the way. Apparently the producers at, at, uh, at Jeopardy are blaming human error. Ah, from my perspective, that, that's at least their second one. You know, they should have called me. It's funny, though, when I, when I do catch uh, snippets of the show, which I still do from time to time, I note I'm just not as quick as I used to be, A. And B, there's so many cultural references from stuff that has taken place in the last 15 years that I don't want to know about that, well, even if they did call me, I don't know that I would do as well as I might have once. Since we're having a little fun with TV theme songs, I got another one lined up. Mr. McMillan? Last Friday, Jerry and Debbie were on their way to see the 49er game the next day down in Santa Clara. I popped in a DVD of an old Batman episode, and, well, we were very amused. It featured Cesar Romero as the Joker, and it reminded me that it really was one of the great comedy shows of the 1960s. Our L.A. correspondent Donald Rose has uh, put an inquiry into Burt Ward, who used to play Robin on the TV series. Evidently, Mr. Ward has received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And yes, we're doing our level best to try and bring him on this show as a guest. I think that would be a real kick. I've always been equal part amused and dismayed by that subset of the population out there among the comics crowd. They're very angry at that Batman TV show because it poked fun of the Cape Crusader. (laughs) Batman, in their minds, is something to be taken quite seriously. And yet, those who would take Batman seriously apparently are carrying the day, at least with the Oscars this year. Word is that the movie Joker has got 11 nominations, including Best Picture and Best Actor for, what's his name? Goofball, appeared on David Letterman. He acted like such a goof that Letterman at one point said words to the effect of like, well, sorry you couldn't make it to the show tonight, Joaquin. Anyway, apparently a movie, a serious movie, about how a guy morphs into being a Batman villain is now something people are taking seriously. But then again, folks, we're living in an era where a reality TV star who pretends to be a successful billionaire businessman convinced a large subset of the population that that's what he really was in real life. Anyway, Mr. Millen says I, it's being prejudicial of me to, uh, to condemn the movie Joker without having seen it. To which I would simply reply, well, if if they can do a deep fake version with Cesar Romero, I might change my mind. And I believe when Cesar Romero passed away something like 15 years ago, we did commemorate it on this program. He was, as I understand it, one of the best 
and best-known dancers in all of Hollywood. Someone else well-known in Hollywood passed away last week, worthy of a, a few words on, and that would be writer, actor, and comedian Buck Henry, who left us at age 89. So the New York Times, Buck Henry, writer and actor who exerted an often overlooked but potent influence on television and movie comedy, creating the loopy primetime spy spoof Get Smart with Mel Brooks, writing the script of Mike Nichols's landmark social satire The Graduate, and teaming up with John Belushi in the famous Samurai sketches on SNL, died Wednesday in Los Angeles. As a personality and performer, Henry had a mild and unassuming aspect that was usually in contrast with the pungently satirical or broadly slapstick material he appeared in, and often wrote. He wrote the screenplay for Catch-22, 1970, described as an earnest but unwieldy adaptation, directed by Mike Nichols of Joseph Heller's corrosively comic anti-war novel, and Candy, 1968, which turned a novel by Terry Southern and Mason Hoffenberg, a riotous send-up of Candide, set during the sexual revolution, into a leaden but star-studded bomb. Sort of forgotten, Candy featured Marlon Brando, Richard Burton, Walter Matthau, and Ringo Starr, and still bombed. His working partners were among Hollywood's brightest lights. If not when they worked together, then later. They included not only Mike Nichols, Mel Brooks, and John Belushi, but also Warren Beatty, with whom he directed the plaintive drama about mortality, Heaven Can Wait, in 1968, which for which he was nominated for an Academy Award. Also, Barbara Streisand, for whom he wrote two cockeyed romantic comedies, The Owl and the Pussycat, 1970, and What's Up, Doc, 1972. The screenplay and work for which Buck Henry is most likely to be remembered was, of course, The Graduate. For the screenplay, Buck Henry adapted the novel written by Charles Webb, set among the affluence and sunshine of mid-1960s suburban Los Angeles. My understanding is that Robert Redford turned down the leading role in that picture because he didn't think he would bring the right level of naivete to the screen. Fortunately, Dustin Hoffman came along, and it, of course, made him a star. I wasn't aware of this, but apparently The Graduate brought in record-breaking numbers when it came out. It was a number one movie in America for months back in 1968 and became the third highest-grossing movie in history up to that time, behind only Gone with the Wind and The Sound of Music. It couldn't have hurt that it had a soundtrack performed by Simon and Garfunkel. Absolutely. A nude horse is a rude horse. Oh my God. Thank you for reminding us. (laughs) I would be remiss if I did not mention that uh, back in the early 1960s, Buck Henry appeared in the Bay Area on various television stations. I believe even Walter Cronkite interviewed him nationally, representing a group called CINA. The acronym stood for the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals. And of course, right away, it should have been the Society Against Indecency naked animals. It was a hoax perpetrated by that that all-time great hoaxer, Alan Abel. He hired Buck Henry to portray the spokesperson for Cinna, a man he called Clifford Prout. 
Remember as a child, seeing him in a deadpan delivery explain why we had to do something about the indecency of all these animals running about with their genitalia exposed. As part of his pitch, he would then show a picture of a horse wearing Bermuda shorts. I was quite disturbed by this as a child and asked my mother, what, 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 is, what is wrong with these people? I believe she was holding a copy of the San Francisco Chronicle reporting on Clifford Prout. She just shook her head and said, yeah, there's some crazy people out there. So yes, thank you, Mr. McMillan. <laughs> that was his tagline. We say a, a nude horse is a rude horse. Now on this program, we, we, we generally try and steer away from topics which we are completely incompetent to talk about. Which why on Radio Parallax you haven't heard a lot of discussion on, say, fashion or cooking. And if it wasn't for Dr. Andy Jones, you probably wouldn't hear much about poetry either. But when stumbling through, <laughs> and I guess that's the word for it in this case, the latest edition of New Scientist magazine, and coming across an article titled, Know Your Onions, I decided we had to take a detour into the world of cooking. You know, I guess we had talked about cooking before with Anthony Bourdain, but he, he, he transcends being a chef. You know what? Again, I, I stand corrected. Many years back, still available on our archives, I believe, was our wonderful chat with Martin Yan, whom we did not query about his knowledge of onions. In this, we're going to have to rely upon the word of Sam Wong, writing in New Scientist. This apparently is part of a new series in the magazine on the science of cooking. To quote from the piece, Let's start where so many recipes begin, with frying onions. A typical recipe will ask you to cook onions until they are soft and brown, often claiming that it takes about 10 minutes. But if you ever tried it, you will know this isn't true. Not by a long shot. It takes around 40 minutes to get properly dark, sweet-tasting onions. But, says Mr. Wong, with a little knowledge of what's happening in the pan, you can have this time and still get great-tasting onions. Since I know this is a goal of, of a great many of you, my dear listeners... We'll do some details here. Said Sam Wong, the first thing that happens when onions cook is that the water inside the cells vaporize. The cells then burst, releasing sugars, proteins, and a variety of aromatic compounds that make your kitchen smell great. If you like the smell of onions. I do. Heat breaks down larger sugar molecules into smaller ones, such as glucose and fructose. It increases the sweetness. These sugars fragment and recombine into hundreds of new molecules, creating sweet, sour and bitter tastes in a process called caramelization. The proteins break down into their constituent amino acids, and it's when these react with sugars that the really delicious flavors start to emerge in what are called mallard reactions. These produce a huge range of compounds and are behind the appetizing color and complex taste of many foods, including seared steak, dark beer, and crusty bread. Now here's the, here's the part I hope you will find valuable. He notes all this takes time, gentle heat, and stirring. If the pan is too hot, or you leave some onions in contact with the surface of the pan for too long, they will produce bitter-tasting compounds before the centers have softened. There are two ways to speed up the process. First, add alkali. The mallard reaction goes faster in a higher pH condition. And Sam Wong notes that a dash of sodium bicarbonate, baking soda, will make onions brown much more quickly. It also weakens the pectin in their cell walls so the cells rupture and release their contents. Do not overdo the bicarb, however, or you will get mushy onions with an unpleasant soapy taste. Who likes that? Apparently the formula is a quarter of a teaspoon 
of baking soda will do for two or three onions. The second tip here is that adding water allows you to raise the heat without burning. Water also dissolves any brown components stuck to the pan and spreads them evenly through the onions. You could also use wine or stock if you prefer. In conclusion, says Mr. Wong, with these cheats, you can get soft, rich, dark brown onions in about 20 minutes. At the conclusion of the article, Wong says, Next week, I will show you how to harness ancient biotechnology to make cheese. That sounds a lot tougher than brown onions, but we'll see what he says next week. Let's see if he can do that in 20 minutes. <laughs> All right, let us now conduct a segue, which to my knowledge has never before been attempted in the history of radio, going from cooking onions to talking about the law. Item number one. In response to Proposition 64, which removed certain marijuana offenses from the state penal code, prosecutors in Contra Costa County will soon automatically dismiss charges against as many as 2,400 people convicted of marijuana-related offenses that no longer are illegal. Makes sense to us. We have to tip our cap to the good people in Martinez that are conducting this decriminalization. All right, item number two. Let's go from decriminalization to recriminalization. Item from Paul Rogers in the Bay Area News Group. Turning up the pressure on Silicon Valley billionaire Vinod Kosla in the high-profile battle over Martins Beach, the California Attorney General's office on January 6th filed suit against the tech mogul, claiming he'd been improperly and illegally restricting public access to a popular beach for the past decade. The lawsuit filed in San Mateo County Superior Court on behalf of the California Coastal Commission and the State Lands Commission is the latest salvo in a decade-long dispute since Kostla purchased 88 acres in 2008 surrounding the beach near Half Moon Bay. The two agencies are seeking a court order to require Kostla, the co-founder of Sun Microsystems, to remove any no-trespassing signs and to take down a gate that he has used to block the only road leading to the waterfront. The agencies contend the generations of families who used the beach and the road leading down to it before Kostla's ownership guaranteed an irrevocable public right of access under long-established legal precedent that he cannot revoke. The article cites a quote from Kostla's legal eagle, or maybe in this case, legal mockingbird, as saying, Since the property was purchased by our client, the state and small activist groups have endeavored to seize our client's property without compensation. While such tactics are commonplace in communist systems, they've never been tolerated in the American system, where the U.S. Constitution precludes the government from simply taking private property and giving it to the public. Well, in my mind, that's kind of a funny way of looking at it. Turns out I am a part of those families that have been going down to that beach for generations, which the article mentions. And the fact is, there was no gate on the road until Kostla bought the property. The Dini family and their business partners, the Watts family, did not consistently collect parking fees until the 1960s or 1970s. This is what the lawsuit alleges, and they note that even after that, people regularly used the road for years without being charged. Furthermore, when charges were collected, the fee was to park a vehicle, not to access the beach. So the fees did not amount to a restriction on public use. I don't know. I'm no lawyer. After Kostla, age 64, of Portola Valley, with a net worth estimated at $2.1 billion, bought the property, he locked the gates, hired guards, and posted no trespassing signs. A couple of years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to take up the Martin Beach battle, 
Then the justices left in place lower court rulings that found Kosla could not lock the gate across the half-mile-long road without a permit from the Coastal Commission because California's Coastal Act requires permits if landowners change public access to beaches. Kosla has not applied for a permit. And since that Supreme Court decision, he has opened the gate most days from about 9 a.m. till about 4.30 p.m. Motorists are charged $10 to drive down the road and park. Some surfers and other visitors still park along Highway 1 and walk 15 minutes down the road to the sand to avoid paying that fee. It's a very odd battle. The State Lands Commission can still take that road or an easement to the road by eminent domain, which it has studied doing, but that's going to require securing funding from the California State Legislature. For his part, Coastal has said he would sell an easement to the state for $30 million, nearly as much as he paid for the whole property. The State Lands Commission has $1 million that could be used for an eminent domain. Anyway, we'll keep our eye on that story. Here's the third item related to the law in a, in a broad sense, at least uh, in terms of the chief executive of the federal branch of the government who enforces the laws. Well, at least the potential for who will be the next chief executive. Some folks out there like Elizabeth Warren. I just want to briefly return to a headline we reported on this show some weeks ago where Mark Zuckerberg says he'll play fair if Warren is elected president. Which, which doggone it, that's big of him. Yeah, some weeks ago, good old Mark Zuckerberg had a meeting where he said he would make sure that even if Elizabeth Warren becomes president, Facebook would remain unbiased toward Warren if she were to post comments on Facebook about how she believes Facebook should be broken apart. Personally, I have a hard time warming up to Elizabeth Warren. Every time I hear her talk, it seems so contrived as she's adopting this role of a teacher, you know, like your school teacher. And it's true, she was a teacher of sorts, professor of law at Harvard, where, as I understand it, she did some fine work for her corporate clients. Anyway, if she surges to the top of the Democratic pack, um, well, we just have to see how good old Mark Zuckerberg reacts. Yeah, these primaries are just about upon us, and I, I just, I don't know what to make of this. I sort of have some sympathy for what David Lenhart had to say in the New York Times which was that both Democrats and Republicans greatly diminished the influence of party leaders back in the 1970s. But the supposedly more democratic process now in place has come to resemble a reality television show. Debate gaffes, one-liners, polls, fundraising determine who survives with a small number of highly partisan voters in early primary states, often choosing a nominee whom most people don't want. That's how Donald Trump, loathed by at least Half of Republican voters and nearly all GOP leaders hijacked the nomination in 2016. In the past, the parties had a big incentive to choose a broadly liked candidate, which is how we wound up with nominees like Lincoln, both Roosevelt's, and Eisenhower. He said, I'm not suggesting we return to the smoke-filled rooms of the past. And major reform, and how it's needed, might be the subject of the fourth item here in what I'm calling matters related to law. What I'd, what I'd be referring to as law in this case is how we conduct elections in this country. Item 4A might be something we referred to on last week's program, how a Trump advisor was caught in a recording discussing how GOP traditionally relies on suppressing votes. Justin Clark, senior political advisor and senior counsel of the Trump campaign, made these comments in a private meeting to Republican National Lawyers Association in their Wisconsin chapter last November, discussed plans for more aggressive, what they're calling, poll watching. He said, let's start playing offense a little bit. 
That's what, that's what you're going to see in 2020. It's going to be a much bigger program, much more aggressive program, much better funded program. Clark later claimed to the Associated Press he was referring to false allegations that Republicans suppress votes. Sure. Well, Republicans are very good at suppressing votes. They're very good at manipulating votes through social media, and they're very good at drawing the lines to determine how we vote. This is part 4B here. We in America appear to owe a great debt to a woman named Stephanie Hofeller. She apparently didn't get along all that well with her dad, Thomas Hofeller, who was a Republican hitman in the style of Roger Stone. Well, maybe not quite Roger Stone, but certainly a guy that worked on how to draw the lines to Republican advantage. More than a year after his death, a cache of computer files saved on his hard drives is now being made public. Republican lawmakers in North Carolina fought in court to keep copies of these maps, spreadsheets, and other documents from entering the public record, but some already came to light in the last few months. They have been cited as evidence of gerrymandering that got political maps thrown out in North Carolina, and they have raised eye questions about Hofeller's role in the Trump administration's failed push for a census citizenship question. After Hofeller died in 2018, which her daughter was unaware of until she basically Googled him, she uh, went to the house, talked to her mom, and took some hard drives filled with GOP redistricting files. Among them was a study which concluded that adding a citizen, citizenship question to the census forms would be, quote, advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites, unquote. Unfortunately for us, when the word got, this got out and the news media took an interest, and Stephanie Hofeller said, oh yeah, there's probably more out there. Her dad's business partner evidently realized, oh yes, there is, and went back to the house and took the rest of the computer and whatever else he could find. Anyway, a longtime strategist for the Republican National Committee, Thomas Hofeller, was known for his warnings to keep redistricting work under wraps. Treat every statement and document as is going to appear on the front page of your local newspaper, he told aides. Emails are the tools of the devil. Curious to note that uh, the, the, the partner, Dale Oldham, who got uh, Hofeller's laptop and desktop computer with his work files, to which, you know, which prompted her mother to tell Stephanie, well, Dale got all the good stuff. He was paid by the Republican National Committee $420,000 for legal and compliance services, part of more than $658,000 he collected from the RNC since last May, according to the Federal Election Commission. What do these guys do? Redraw the lines to thwart the democratic process might be the best one-sentence description. If the American democracy is going to survive into the 2020s, this has to be looked at and stopped. All right. Fifth and final item related to law has to do with what Nancy Pelosi is trying to do to Donald Trump, which is pass through Congress a war powers resolution limiting his actions on Iran. Sounds like a good idea to me. The Constitution uh, it seems to have always been a battle in the three branches of the federal government since the earliest days over who got the right to declare war. And uh, it looks as though in recent generations, the executive branch has seized control from the legislative. The last time the U.S. bothered to actually declare war was, I believe, in 1941. At any rate, the resolution has passed. Nancy Pelosi says the measure will protect American lives and values by limiting Donald Trump's military actions. I guess it's slightly encouraging to note that three Republicans did vote for this one. There's a similar resolution in the Senate, which may have some tough sledding. We'll have to see how that goes. 
Anyway, the House has asserted that Donald Trump must seek approval from Congress before engaging in further military action against Iran. At dinner a couple nights ago, former Radio Parallax guest and, and my pal Dr. Roger Orman joked that he'd heard that Donald Trump had put the romantic moves on Nancy Pelosi and that it caused her to hold up sending along the articles of impeachment. My response to that crack was, if Donald Trump did put the moves on Nancy Pelosi romantically, I'm pretty sure that would have led to about two or three more articles of impeachment being sent forward. She once was a We must at this point take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around.